minds. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for giving us the truth, Father, for it is the truth that sets us free, as your word states so clearly. Father, thank you also for expressing your grace, your mercy, and your love towards us. For we love because you first loved us. What a privilege it is to partake in this love and to spread it, especially during this time of the year, Father, where people undoubtedly are hurting and need uh, the encouragement from the Word of God, Father. We're so grateful for the opportunity to be in the path of spreading it, spreading true love in this world, Father. We pray for those that are still ill in our congregation, Father, that you return them to us. Your will be done, of course. And we pray for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that they be humbled before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality for all of us to enjoy, to partake in. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence, part 52. We wrapped up uh, on Wednesday. There was a short sort of review from our mini-series, what we call uh, Effective Evangelism. And so we sort of put a wrapper on that. There's still some remnants of it. Uh, obviously, whenever there's a mini-series injected like it was, it's never done in a vacuum. It's never, um, it's always part of our main curriculum, even though there are uh, title differences. And so it doesn't uh, surprise me that these remnants remain in our messages even this morning. So we wrapped up that work on effective evangelism this past week, and interestingly enough, but not surprisingly, we ended up with the, this particular concept, which frankly, has been coming up in our messages for, what, years now as a mainstream topic. And so the idea of obedience came up once again. And here's uh, sort of the capstone of much of what the Spirit's been sort of pulling together in this series, The Lord is Our Confidence. How do we obtain said confidence? How is said confidence imparted to us? And also, um, when it comes to the gospel proper, what is, how does obedience play into uh, evangelism even? And so here's sort of a pulling together uh, principle. What begins at salvation proper with the command to obey, I even wrote a blog on that, with the command to obey the gospel continues throughout our lives as we are commanded to obey the word. And if you think about just what is behind it, what's or who and what is empowering these commands to sort of transpire or our ability even to obey these commands. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit that convicts us at salvation as the same one who convicts us as believers. So it's the Spirit that's behind it all. And that came up, mm, what, a couple of months ago now? The power of the Spirit, remember that? few lessons on that. We can't remember that we don't go at this alone. And so even the notion of obedience, we have to remember that the Spirit is right there teaching us, encouraging us uh, to move forward, to sort of stick it out. And so obedience has been at the forefront. What begins at salvation proper, and I'm just trying to give you the, the whole viewpoint from God's perspective when we talk about sanctification. There's positional, experiential, or progressive, and then what some would call ultimate. And so there's this whole plan of sanctification, which is really just saying that God saves us, right? God is not bound by the construct of time, and so God saves us. And that's the whole plan viewed all at once. And so obedience is at the forefront. What begins at salvation proper with the command to obey the gospel continues throughout our lives as we are commanded to obey the word. Same spirit in both situations. As believers, we've been given the greatest command of all, the one that Jesus articulated. Go to Mark 12, 
verse 30. Mark 12, 30. Mark 12, 30. So we're going to focus a little bit more on uh, we believers this morning. We did a lot of work, obviously, on unbelievers with effective evangelism in view. Mark 12.30, though. What about us? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so, after salvation proper, I mean, we like to say, in a nutshell, that love hung on a cross, right? After that, after that expression of love comes the expression of love in time. And the beauty of it is that we get to channel it. We get to be partakers of it. And this is the command as it is in front of us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love your God, love your neighbor. In other words, Abide in my love, as Jesus would say. Abide in my love. So we've done a lot of work on salvation, uh, on the salvation end of things with our previous mini-series. So this morning we're going to spend more time on this preeminent command for we believers to love. And that starts, of course, with, well, what is love? And the Bible tells us what love is. What is love? Up here on the board, we have Holy Scripture for that particular answer. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. In other words, for this love to be real, for, this, for us to stake a claim to love, it has to be consummated. Does that make sense? It can't just be lip service. It can't just be, I love the Lord. I love Jesus. It has to be consummated. Almost like faith. You know, for faith to be real, it has to be tested and proven. The proof of your faith. Remember 1 Peter 1.7? Love has to be consummated. There has to be a substance to it. There has to be, like I like to call it in, in chemical terms, a litmus test. Right? We can't just say that we love God and then disobey. Because the Bible says this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And when we have that love, when we're abiding in that love, His commandments, they're not burdensome. As a matter of fact, when you love someone that much, you want to do for them. Is that fair enough? When you love someone that completely, the last thing you want to do is disobey. The very first thing you want to do is obey because that's pleasing to that person. And in our situation, that's our master. We want to uh, please our master. We want to obey him. That's the proof that our love exists, you see? And that's all the Bible says. It's that simple. And if you don't obey his commandments, you have to step back and say, well, what about my fruit? What about, where am I at? And for some of us, for some of you I'm speaking to right now, it wasn't until we got the gospel reload that you realized you hadn't obeyed that command. That you hadn't even obeyed the gospel yet. You had sort of been running along, you know, doing this number. Oh, yeah, you know, I love, I obey. And then somehow, some way, the Spirit got through to you. That's the point, the previous point, that the Spirit's right there in all phases of sanctification. Somehow the Spirit got through to you, and now you're confident with your relationship through Jesus with God. Hmm. This is the love of God. And that's what that means. That's what that means. This is the love of God. That we keep His commandments, and oh, by the way, His commandments are not burdensome. On Wednesday, the Spirit summarized this as follows. Same principles, just worded differently, up here on the board, on the topic of obedience, Sanctification depends upon obeying God's commands. First, we obey the gospel. Then we obey the command to love, which is the fulfillment of the law. 
Romans 13, 8 to 14. And that's what sanctification looks like. It starts with the gospel. We obey the gospel. And then we obey the command, the preeminent command, to love. That's how it works. Go to Romans 13, 8. We'll summarize real quick. Romans 13, verse 8. Romans 13, 8. We're not going to read the whole passage. We're just going to read 8 and 14. But I hope you see what the Spirit's getting at here. Obedience is a beautiful thing. We shouldn't approach it like adolescent teens where it's, you know, some kind of oppressive thing. That's when we end up right back in bondage because we put ourselves there with that attitude, with that perspective. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Doesn't that sound just like what we just read? How about verse 14? Now the activity, the act of sanctification, Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So speaking of what is love, here we have it right in Holy Scripture. As the Spirit's pointed out in the past, true love cannot help but express itself. True love cannot help but express itself. And without sounding too poetic this morning, we might say that Love is the basis for sanctification. That love is the basis for sanctification. Think about why God is even sanctifying you. Because He loves you. He wants what's best for you. That's where sanctification, that's the motivation, if you would, for sanctification. If we want to thread the whole thing together, we say that love motivates grace. Grace is what provides sanctification. And there are little... Uh, nuances in between, but this is the sort of string of pearls that the Spirit's been laying out before this congregation, frankly, for years now. And so it's good for us to remember that principle that true love cannot help but express itself. And in our case, when we have that command to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what we want to do. That's the whole point. It's how we know we've been saved even that we've obeyed the very first command. That is the gospel. Because we want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we don't have our moments or in our moods. I can see some of you like, I'm already in a mood. I don't want to put them on. I don't like any commands Sunday morning at 10.15. I'd rather be out there collecting candy from Santa. Oh, did you guys see him? I'm like, that's such a good use of public money. You got two cop cars and a fire engine, and Santa's up there throwing candy. And someone's car keeps going. Whose is it? Oh, can can you like shut it off or something? All right, Billy. I'm just it just it's just gonna look like you raising your hand in class. <laughs> so without sounding too poetic, we might say that love is the basis for sanctification. For example, at salvation, the love that hung on the cross is in full view. As believers, love is what sustains us. And then once we're in heaven, it'll be love that ultimately envelops us. I just described the three theological phases of sanctification, did I not? Love hung on the cross, love sustains us, love envelops us. So it's always... Love. We can't wax poetic uh, like a lot of people do and forget about all the details. Like, this is love, that you keep my commandments. We don't just get to wax poetic and say we all just sing kumbaya and we all just love the Lord Jesus and that's how it goes. No, there's work in in view here. We are, after all, slaves to our master. We are yoked with him. The very image of being yoked is that of an oxen being yoked together to plow a field. 
And so there's obviously work to be done here. The call for we believers that facilitates sanctification is actually in Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ up here on the board. We did some work on this on Wednesday. This describes sanctification in a nutshell. To put him on, as far as we're concerned right now, on planet Earth, assuming we're saved, so positional sanctification is behind us, assuming we're saved, this is our mandate. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we are sanctified. This describes sanctification in a nutshell. Remember, the end goal of sanctification is to be formed into the image of Christ. And we looked at 2 Corinthians 3.18, Galatians 4.19, Ephesians 4.20-24, Philippians 3.13-14, Colossians 2.6-7, 1 John 3.2-3. We're not going to go through them. I've, I've done the work for you up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Galatians 4.19 My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's just Paul expressing his desire for his disciples to be Sanctified. You'll see that from this pulpit as well, obviously. Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this is a reference to this obedience of faith that we're going to talk about a little bit more this morning, using Romans, the book of Romans, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That actually sort of paints the picture of sanctification. That we start here and we're sanctified, sort of, uh, in your perspective, up and to the left, right? Sort of we go up and to the left. Time and, and sanctification or measure of sanctification is up and to the left. That's the vector that we're on. And that's a lifelong journey. And it requires this underpinning that Paul talks often about, as we'll see, called obedience, but obedience of faith. And if you want to really get technical, faith is a grace gift from God. It's empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. Now you start seeing the underpinnings of this obedience, that you're not left alone, that God's not so demanding and such a taskmaster that he says, hey, do these things to be pleasing to me. Good luck. He says, I command you to do these things, and oh, by the way, take my Spirit's power, receive my Spirit's power to do these things. What's required from us? Humility. Showing up like you did this morning. Just show up, right? You don't have to have it perfect. I don't have it perfect. Just show up with a, with a modicum of humility. Do that thing. Just show up. And God promises to do this good thing in you. That's Philippians 1.6. He promises to complete the work he started in you at salvation. See it? That's it. It's not difficult. It's not rocket science. We like to make it rocket science because we're always trying to find loopholes. You can laugh. It's true, right? Or some of you are like, that's not even funny. <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> Put a... Hey, Pastor humor, all right? This is why I need another pastor, like, over here somewhere. He'd be like, yeah, that was hilarious. One guy, right, all, like, dorking out. <laughs> uh, anyways, put on the Lord Jesus Christ is our point. This describes sanctification in a nutshell. Remember, the end goal of sanctification is to be formed into the image of Christ. I want to read this, uh, the next few ref references now, though. Go, go to Colossians 2, verse 6. Colossians 2, verse 6. Colossians 2, verse 6. <clears throat> 
Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That's the practical side of sanctification. That's the same thing as saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? It's just a different way of saying it. Different audiences, maybe. Uh, different contexts, slightly. But it's the same thing. Over and, I've taught you this. The Bible is actually really simple. What has to happen for most of us is we have to shed all the religion and all the preconceptions and all the lies. And that's hard to do when you're living out there. It's hard to do when you're being pelted with false doctrine, doctrines of demons, day in and day out through uh, a television or a movie or the internet or a, a smartphone. It's really hard. Or you go to work and that's, nobody really cares about Jesus Christ at your work for the most part, it seems. And so you're pelted and you're in this situation that is antagonistic to walking in him. And so that's why we need the confidence that's why you study the Word of God. It's why you need to obey so that at some point you're sanctified to the degree that you have the same confidence, the same type of confidence that, say, Paul had. That's why we do this thing on a Sunday morning even, is to be encouraged towards that end goal. Because when we're sanctified, as we learned this past week, God is glorified. Because as we just talked about, He does all the work. We just have to show up with humility. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's a reference to the first phase of sanctification, so walk in Him. This is the second phase that we're in. So walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith Remember, it's obedience of faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I always like when he includes the idea of thanksgiving, because I don't know about you. I know for a fact that it would be impossible for me to sanctify myself. It would be impossible for me to even please my Lord. It would be impossible for me to ever bring glory to him if it wasn't for him in the first place. It would be impossible and for that, I'm very grateful. Because when I'm, when I'm on board, when I show up, I receive benefits. We all receive benefits. That's the whole point. There's fruit in this. Read Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things. They're beautiful. Just show up. Here's a verse, again, a reference verse from Put on the Lord Jesus Christ principle. 1 John 3, 2-3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And again, that's another reference to sanctification. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure, all right, let's go to our final reference. Go to Ephesians 4, verse 20. Ephesians 4, verse 20. Go there. Ephesians 4, verse 20. <clears throat> but that is not the way you learned Christ, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, in other words, assuming that you've, you're saved, uh, here's what I want you to do. Does that make sense? Assuming that we're starting in phase two of sanctification, here's what I want you to know. And then he says in verse 22, put off your old self. This is something we do. We have to do. Put that thing off. Right? That's an active voice. Present tense. I'm sure of it. I don't have the Greek in front of me, but I'm sure of it. Ephesians 4.22. Put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so now you have both sides of the equation. Get rid of the old, put on the new. That's essentially the same thing as put on the Lord Jesus Christ up here on the board. That's our principle. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ from Romans 13, 14. This describes sanctification in a nutshell. And again, the end goal of sanctification is to be formed into the image of Christ. We just saw that again in Ephesians 4, 24. On Wednesday, we noted something very interesting in the book of Romans, getting back to this idea. Since this is a command, right? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're to use Ephesians 4, take the old self off, put on the new. These are all commands, right? So there's a requirement whenever a command is given to obey. That's the implication. And so we looked at Romans. Uh, most people, well, a lot of people would look at Romans and say, this is, you know, to use a literary term, this would be Paul's opus, right? This is his big work. This is the one that when people think of Paul and being a writer of the New Testament, they think, oh, Romans, Romans, right? This was his big treatise on all things, you know, justification by faith, not by works, blah, 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 blah. And so Romans really is a central component of the New Testament. And it's interesting because Paul uses this concept of obedience, and he ties it with obedience of faith. He doesn't just say obey, but obedience of faith, right? Obedience of faith through the entire book, he uses it. And for the record, obedience of faith is simply another way of addressing the issue of humility. Or this kind of harkens back to a few messages ago. Remember we talked about uh, meekness, that Jesus was meek but not weak. And meekness just means submissiveness, right? Jesus was meek, and he also said, blessed are the meek. And so there's blessing in obedience of faith, in humility, etc. up here on the board. And we can tie that together with John 14, 15, which reads, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we pull this together then? Obedience of faith, you know, keeping my commandments. Humility and meekness, excuse me all speak to the same thing. Submission to the Lordship of Christ. Why do we submit? Like we all agreed, apparently, at the start of class, because we love Him. We have a very real affection for Him. And because this affection exists in our souls, we want to submit to Him. That's what the Spirit's been saying since October of 2015 when we started the Gospel Reload. In the absence of that affection for Christ is the absence of salvation. The person who says with their mouth only, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you know, I'm going to check off this religious box, right? Because that's the right thing to say. Do you know what I'm saying? the right thing to say. I'm going to check off this box. The person who says that but has no real affection for Christ, their heart hasn't been changed. God hasn't done that work in them yet. They're not even positionally sanctified yet. There's another command that they have to obey. And that entails a lot of other things like repentance and being humbled that way. Recognizing their own depravity in the first place. That they cannot save themselves. All of that has to happen before you get to the stage or the phase we're talking about this morning. So obedience of faith, humility, and meekness all speak to the same thing. Submission to the Lordship of Christ. And this is what love looks like. If you really want to know, it's not a romance novel. It's just not. It's just not. And, and I think a lot of people would do very well. You know, one of the great... There's a reason why God set up um, 
why the Word of God speaks to the Lord Jesus Christ as our husband, and we're his bride. Do you understand? There's a certain dynamic that exists there, a certain love that exists there. And so we, we know from Holy Scripture that earthly marriage, is a, in its perfect designed way, is a picture of the heavenly. Right? And so there's that also husband-wife dynamic. And that people who have that thing wrong, who think that that love, right? Husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. That dynamic, when they have it wrong, when, they, when they've bought that weird, goofy, evil lie about romanticism, that, that, that this pristine thing called marriage that's supposed to reflect the relationship between Christ and his bride is romantic. I'm not saying you can't have romance in your marriage, don't get me wrong. But the basis of a healthy marriage is this kind of love. Do you understand? That this love is based on God's word, God's law even, all of that. The institution of it is what's in the Bible. And that's what love looks like. We have to get away from the romance, you know, because it's bled into the church. People are completely disoriented to the idea of marriage, especially in America. And it bleeds over. The, the, the basis for their conceptualization of relationships in general, what true love is, is perverted, you see? It's about romance. It's about emotionalism. That bleeds into the faith. And people stop reading their Bibles, and they stop hearing no, this is love, that you keep my commandments. That there's a, a divine orchestration in view between husband and wife. This is what love looks like. It's respectful. It's good. It's in Christ Jesus. That's what this love looks like, the kind of love we're talking about biblically. It literally has nothing to do with that romantic garbage that you've been lied to about. Nothing at all. And that's a very important thing uh, when we talk about what we're talking about. We just noted earlier in 1 John 5, 3, again, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. I mean, how, how often do you hear a wife say, my husband's such a PIA. You know what that is? A pain in the arse, right? My husband, why is Tammy laughing louder than anybody? <laughs> I don't know where this is coming from, right? Oh, my wife's the ball and chain. Imagine if Christ thought of us as a ball and chain. The, the, the infrastructure in view, it's not burdensome. When, when true love exists, we we integrate, if that makes sense. And it's, it's beautiful. That's the point. That's the point. The perversion is, on the street, to break all that up. You follow? To break all that up. And that's why a lot of times it's difficult for people to hear these messages, especially married people, or people that have, have had rocky marriages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's hard, because they're saying, just... This is the first time I've heard this. I wish I knew this, you know, 2020 in hindsight. I wish I knew this when I was proposing. I wish I knew this stuff so I could have protected my own soul and the soul of someone else and then the souls of my children down the line. I wish I knew this because I would have been better off. And you know what? Here's the deal, guys. You ready? Not one person. Has anybody in here invented a time machine? So you know what? Don't be condemned by it. Now, anybody, anybody want to raise your hand and say you haven't looked at the Bible and say, oh, crap, I did, about that. I did that mistake about a thousand times previously, but I didn't know. Anybody want to say that? Of course, this is how we grow up. Don't live a life of condemnation just because you failed. We are moving forward. Did we not just read that with Paul? I leave the things behind. I press on to the upward prize. Is that fair? 
Yeah, that's freedom. Because you know what I just taught you? That's the truth. The truth is Jesus Christ doesn't want you to live in old memories and mistakes. So they happen. I think, I'm pretty sure, you ready? No extra cost. I'm pretty sure he died on the cross for them. Amen? I'm pretty sure that's what the cross is. That he paid the price for all of our ridiculousness. Even before we knew about it. Even before we knew about it. Hmm. Dwell on those things. So Paul wrote the book of Romans from a heart filled with love for his Lord, our Lord. So, contrary to popular religious belief today, when he exhorted his disciples to obey, it was for their own benefit. It's for their own benefit so that they too might enjoy the fruit that Jesus taught his disciples up here on the board. John 15, 10 to 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Isn't that beautiful? I give you my commandments so that you can enjoy this thing called life. If you're saved, you've been given eternal life already. We just aren't convinced of it wholly. Our flesh drags its feet against these realities. But this is why he gives us commandments so that we can enjoy these gifts. Enjoy knowing that the gospel truth is resident in our lives, that we're saved, that God loved us enough to become a man and die on the cross for our sins. And that alone is enough. That alone is enough every single day, as long as you remember it, as long as you haven't been distracted by the world, because that's what the world specializes in taking you away, distracting you, all the white noise. So I hope you see the connective tissue here between obedience, love, and the ultimate joy that results in abiding in the sphere of God. Paul, for example, was trained firsthand by the Lord himself, which means that he shares Christ's heart on these things. We must remember this when we read the book of Romans, which can, if taken out of context, seem sort of cold and sterile. He was addressing a certain something in the book of Romans. And if we don't understand the root cause of it, where Paul's heart was, why he was using obedience of faith, then we missed the point. And I think that's why a lot of people, when they read the book of Romans, say maybe for the first time, they're a little rattled by it. And some portions of it are actually theologically somewhat difficult. Even Peter said that. Um, they're somewhat difficult to understand first time through. And so there's like an amalgamation or a combination or whatever you want to call it of, of this confusion tied with confusion about Paul's heart, not understanding the context of it. And you come out the other end, you're like, whew, that was a tough read. It, I, it, feel, it felt kind of cold, like in musical terms, staccato, like boom, boom, like it felt sharp, cutting, right? And we all go through that thing. But here's the thing, as you mature in the faith, you realize that Paul was beautiful. His heart was pure. He loved. And so he was willing to do the hard work. Sound familiar? You have a guy talking to you right now that does the same thing, offends you, makes you angry, says things you don't like, right? I can always see, but I can tell by your body language, right? I can, I can tell you, I know all of you so well that when a certain message is going to get taught, I can say this. Okay, you ready? So-and-so is going to go, or so-and-so is going to go, no, this is a vessel, ready? They'll be sitting like that. They slowly put their hand on the table like they're, you know, like this. 
Then they go like this. And they think I don't see it. It's absolutely hilarious. I'm like, you just checked your watch. It's the funniest thing. And they think they're so slick. Like, they'll go like this. Oh. <laughs> hilarious. Right? And then the next time I teach on something different, those people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other people are like, oh. Anyways, trying to loosen you up. All, I can, all I'm really trying to say to you is I know from personal experience why Paul was writing the way he did. Why he wrote about obedience of faith. Why he did his darndest to bring things together like obedience, love, and joy. I see a man protecting the flock. That's what I see. Whenever Paul uses the phrase obedience of faith, it's from a root of love. He's not trying to be a taskmaster. He's certainly not trying to put anyone back into bondage. It's for the benefit of sanctification in a believer. That's why. So, to prove that, look at the very first sentence of the book of Romans. Go to Romans 1.5. We looked at this on Wednesday, but I want you to see it again because I want you to be uh, convinced of it. Look at Romans 1.5. Now, we're jumping in in, ver in verse 5, but just so you know, it's the sentence started in verse 1. Okay, So it is actually the very first sentence in the book of Romans, where he says in verse 5, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. There's the first, first mention, if you would. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong, excuse me, to Jesus Christ. Okay? So he starts off the very first sentence in this opus, if you would, of his, this incredible book, the book of Romans. He starts off with the topic, very first sentence he mentions to bring about the obedience of faith. Does that not set a purpose in your soul? Why am I writing this book? to bring about the obedience of faith. He actually says it clearly. Why am I writing this book? To bring about the obedience of faith. That's why I'm writing it. Okay. How about the middle of the book? Go to Romans 6, verse 16. Romans 6, verse 16. Right? As any good, I guess, any good writer or teacher would do, they pepper their correspondence, or they pepper their writing or their speaking, or however you'd like to say, they pepper it with the main principle. So here we go, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Hmm. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Middle of the book, dealing with some pretty heavy stuff at that point, he goes right back to obedience. Well, it makes sense, does it not? Considering he opened up, he said, this is why I'm writing this, to bring you to obedience of faith. And oh, by the way, in chapter 6, I'm going to talk about what obedience looks like. You can be obedient to sin. You can be obedient to unrighteousness or righteousness. So, the, so in the middle of this, you see the the antagonistic behavior or of his enemies, if you would. And then the last sentence, go to Romans 16.25. Romans 16.25. And I'm giving you a very big sweeping overview for the sake of context. Next time when you read Romans, understand this. First sentence, middle was, was uh, ripe with it. And then the last sentence, we're going to the last sentence now. Lo and behold, I guess Paul is a pretty darn good writer kind of happens when God the Holy Spirit is the inspiration, is the author. Paul was the pen. The Spirit was the author. Right? So Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, 
to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever more through Jesus Christ. Amen. First sentence, last sentence, middle of the book, what do you see? Obedience of faith. Here's the, here's the key up here on the board. To Paul, obedience was the key to sanctification. He said it's not going to happen. If you stop believing false prophets and false doctrines and doctrines of demons and you disobey God's commands, you are frustrating sanctification. If you have, furthermore, if you have no affection whatsoever for Jesus Christ, you might have a bigger problem with obedience. You might have to go back to the start and consider your salvation even. But in both cases, here or there, obedience is the key to it. You understand? It's what unlocks it. So to Paul, obedience was the key to sanctification. Now, as it relates to our current series, the Lord is our confidence. The Lord is our confidence. When we're obedient, we're confident. Why? Because we're in the sphere of God. That's what the Spirit's been saying now for weeks. When we obey, we're ushered back to the sphere of God. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We put off the old self. We put on the new self. We shed the things that keep us in bondage. We put on the things that set us free. We wear Jesus Christ, who is the very manifestation of grace and truth. That book in front of you is grace and truth. Do you understand? It's the Logos. It's the Word. It's Jesus Christ, John 1.14. We put all of that on. You're doing it right now. How do you put on Jesus Christ? Primarily, read the Word of God. Learn the Word of God. That's how it's done. That's how it's done. And when we put him on, we're confident. We're confident. Because here's, the, here's another drum roll. Are you ready? God has the market cornered on perfection and righteousness. When you're unconfident, you struggle. You have doubts about whether or not you're right. Correct? Someone says, are you sure you know what you're talking about? Andrea, are you sure? Right? Andrea's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. She lacks confidence, right? Because someone's in her grill saying, do you know what you're talking about? You fun, you, you have all the data. I don't know. Right? She's like, I think I just had my baby. <laughs> right? I don't know. But what happens when you know that you're righteous? What happens when you can say without the, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know what I'm talking about because I've read it. People can throw all they want at you. It's not even your shoulders that are bearing the brunt. It's the truth. Right? And at some point, the conversation may go, that's what I read in the Bible. You might even be trying to attack me personally right now. I can see it because I can see your flesh like with its fangs. But I'm going to defer to the Bible. Do you see the beauty in it? When you know the Word of God, He takes the brunt. You see? It's when you try to take the brunt, when you're strong, right? Oh, I'm going to do it. And you, your confidence is a fake. It's a facade. Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When this thing goes down and I put my faith in this, I'm strong. So when you're obedient then you have confidence because you know you're right. That's the basis of confidence. When you kind of know you're not right or you're faking it until you make it, your confidence is a facade. And all it takes is enough pressure for it to fold. Is that fair? Yeah, it really is. That's, that's the game we play, though. On Wednesday, we pondered the challenge to this biblical precept. When we're obedient, we're confident. Namely, the one that exists in this world regarding... Again, what is love, and even where do we find it? Where do we find this love? These are two age-old questions that most people spend their lifetimes trying to answer. When all along, it's right here in the beautiful pages of the Bible. Where do I find this love? Where do I find my confidence Right? And if you start stringing those things together, even just on this morning's message, we're obedient because we love, 
we love, we keep his commandments. When we do this, we're confident. You see? See the, it's a, see the whole swirl? They're all interrelated. Where do I find it? Again, these are questions that people really want to know. Here's what the Bible has to say about our chief antagonist to finding this love. Up here on the board, Romans 7, 8 to 9. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The summary of that is that sin lies dormant, so to speak, until it's excited. Put a boundary condition in front of sin, and all of a sudden it's got something to um, work against, something to oppose, something to, the best word is really assert itself against. You see, that's where sin comes alive. If there's no boundary condition, sin just sits there and goes, well, i got nothing to, to oppose. I've got nothing to assert my own tashuka, my own authority. What, am, what do I got? You put something there, and all of a sudden you're like, all right, game on. That's sin. That's sin. There are all kinds of delusions out there, and none more arguably than in the realm of love. This is love that you keep my commandments, okay? The world does not want you to understand this. This is the point. This is why the Spirit just brought up marriage as an example, but any relationship. The world does not want you to understand this. It wants you to be delusional. It wants you to remain in delusion because that's how it can control you. Tashuka, remember? The best example is, you know, when a dog is in submission, it's on its back. That's what Tashuka wants to do, puts you on its back. The only way that can happen for a true believer in Christ is if you are deluded. And in your delusion, you have a lack of confidence. And that's the very picture of a dog on its back, is it not? Can't win this fight, better roll over. That's the very picture of a dog in a fight that knows it's going to lose. And so this is what's going on, equipping you, equipping you. What about love? Everybody's, you know, the greatest of all, greatest of these commandments is love. Well, what about love? What, where do I find it? What is it? We just saw that it's to keep commandments, but where do I find it? All these things start circulating. And there's so many delusions in this world that keep people away from the truth. I'm talking about the world and the deceptions. From my perspective, and this is just my perspective, it's kind of a toss-up between love and grace as to which has been perverted more. But since grace is a bit more technical, I think that love takes the prize. I think in this world, if magically we were able to take all the lies about love out, like just in the snap of a finger, if God said, okay, I'm going to take all the lies about love right now, gone, out of everybody's brains, boom, I think we'd be in a lot better place. So I think love takes the prize, but in this case, the prize is a turd, right? It's not really a prize to be bragging about. I don't have license to get into the details of Wednesday's message. Suffice to say that whoever was present needed to hear it. That I know. But before we depart from this, uh, this morning, this thought, I wonder how many people have ever read this verse. And I'm not, again, I'm going to say this again. I said it on Wednesday. Get over yourself, please. Okay? If a, if a command hits you, or if a truth in the Bible hits you square between the eyes, just take it. Pick up your bootstraps. You know, suck it up, buttercup. Right? Here's the truth. This is what the Bible says, not Pastor Ed, so don't hate on me. Right? I didn't say you reconcile this with God in your own time. Don't make this about you and I, okay? Malachi 2.16, part A, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that divorce is not really that hated anymore in society. It just is. Everybody's doing it. I need to turn over. I need another. I need a newer model. This model's getting old. Do you know what I'm saying? I need, I need, I need a newer model than this one. This one's kind of like run its course. You know, it's getting a little saggy around the edges, you know. 
after a few kids, pop out a few kids, things are sagging. You know, I want, I want a new one. I'm going to go on Facebook. I'm on, no, I'm better, I'm going to go on Craigslist. I'm going to go find me a date on Craigslist, right? The Lord said, I hate divorce. What say we? What does our society say? I wonder how many people, even in Christianity, have never read this verse. I don't know. Well, you know what, though? We have. Now you've seen it. And if you think I made it up, then guess what? Go to your Bible and see what it says. Our Lord said, in the truth shall make you free. Is that the truth? Yeah. How, you, how that makes its way into your soul, that's between you and the Lord. But what I know from Holy Scripture, from the words of my Lord, is that the truth will make you free. And if it's in the Bible, it's the truth. Freedom comes at the hand of truth. This we know. When we read the word of truth, our eyes are opened wide. Here's where we ended on Wednesday. I've still got some time. Go to Ephesians 1.18. Ephesians 1, verse 18. This is where we ended on Wednesday. We'll see if we can push the envelope a little bit further this morning, and we'll close up. Ephesians 1.18. Why all this work? Right? Why all this work? Why all the clarifying statements about love and obedience and how joy comes about, what sanctification looks like. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Up here on the board, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. It is difficult to get our arms around this. By the grace of God, he blesses us with spiritual sight, which changes us profoundly. We get to see him while alive on earth, and we love him in response. That's why we're doing this, to have our eyes open, because it's the truth that sets us free. You want to be confident? You have to know the truth. You have to know the truth. That's the point. You have to submit to it. Meekness, right? You have to submit. There's a thing called obedience of faith. You have to submit to him. So as we exit this deep dive, and it's been a long exit, our message title, remember, is The Lord is Our Confidence. We're sort of gathering up uh, as we go. Let's gather up some old friends. I got a little time here. Case in point regarding Satan's desire that we not understand God's command to obey for the sake of sanctification. Satan does not want you to understand that that's where the treasure trove is. Obedience. Some of you have already decided, I'm not even done with the message, and you've already decided, I'm not going to obey that. And the way you do that, trust me, I've been there, is you say, well, the bald guy said it, and I don't, I don't agree with the bald guy, because you're a coward, and you make it about me, because the truth, you know that you cannot stand up against. You know that, so you make it about me. I don't like that guy. I'm not going to go there anymore, because I don't like what he says about this or that. Happens all the time. It's happening in other churches right now that are teaching the same truth. I'm sure of it. Why? Because people don't want the truth. And that's satanic. And that is the whole point. That's the satanic side of this. He doesn't want you to understand God's commands to obey because that's what sanctification, that's what results in sanctification. And as we learned this past week, sanctification brings glory to who? God. The so-called ability to stand up against the truth in today's day and age brings glory to self. 
I'm a self-made man. You're talking to one, my friends. You're talking to one who thought that way for years and years. Ask my wife. And I was really good at it. Probably be some VP somewhere right now in industry, if not a president. Could have dominated the whole darn thing, to be totally honest with you. You know what I found out? Garbage. Big old fat lie. Satan, Satan's got everybody under this great delusion. But there's this great revelation that the, the Spirit pointed out at the start of the last couple of messages that the hallmark of disobedience is abiding in lies. The hallmark of disobedience is abiding in lies. I wrote a blog not too long ago titled Lies Produce the Opposite of Advertised Results. And the gist of that was this up here on the board. Satanic lies produce the exact opposite of what they promise. The exact opposite. They say, oh yeah, put all your eggs in self. You know, self-confidence, self-esteem, self-righteousness. And you will have the confidence you so seek. Put all these things, put all that in that bag, right? And you'll find love. Because everybody loves a confident partner, right? And then what happens at the end of it all? It's all garbage. And if they take it to the end, they end up rotting in hell. And I say that with deepest regret. But here's one thing I hold true, because the Bible says it's true. Anybody in hell not only deserves to be there, but actually chose to be there. God's not unjust. So that kind of arrogance, the people cannot claim, I didn't know. You did know. You did know. And that's the whole point. You bought a lie. You chose a lie because you were arrogant. To the end. So why you got folks like myself fighting the good fight. Because we actually care about people that don't even care about themselves that way trying to bring people to the truth that maybe even right now still don't want it. Trying to plant seeds when there's a hurricane out and there's dust in your face and people are throwing like hoes and rakes at you and you can't see straight and you're trying to, you're trying to plow with the Lord and plant the gospel seed and people still don't want it. Because they're buying a lie from the world. Here's what I'll close with. When we fall into sin, when we disobey, same thing, we suffer the exact opposite experience from sanctification. Up here on the board, James 1.15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, effectively, sin takes us back to spiritual death experientially, which technically means separation from God. Does that not just, think of, I'm thinking conceptually, think of this entire series. It was all meant to bring us into the sphere of God, Right? Sin is designed to rob you of that experience, of that. That your joy may be full. Disobey is, is literally an arrow that goes in this way, right? Obedience goes in this way. Obey goes directly into the sphere of God. Disobey goes away from God. So when you disobey, no matter how good it feels to you, how much you're getting encouraged by the kingdom of darkness... It's designed to take you away from all the promises. The only way that, generally speaking, the world can do that is to counterfeit those promises, to lie to you and say, oh, no, 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 you don't need to be in Christ to have confidence, to enjoy love, to have peace, to have all the fruit of the Spirit even, right? We'll just rob them all. We'll write some romance books and self-help books and 
self-esteem books and we'll, we'll raise up psychologists and psychiatrists that want nothing to do with the truth but rather lie to you about this, that, and the other. We'll do all of this stuff to make a better you. Right? In other words, you can get this on your own. You can get there on your own. Screw the power of God, the Holy Spirit. You don't need Him. It doesn't take the power of the Spirit to disobey, to go in this direction. All you need is yourself. Pack your bags. Let's go. That's the lie. Life is here. Right? God, Jesus Christ, is eternal life or life eternal. Life is here in God, in the sphere of God. Death is separate from him. That's it. Obedience this way, disobedience that way. So I'll finish this, I promise. Sin takes us back to spiritual death experientially, which is technically separation from God, which, again, if you can visualize, means you are putting a distance between yourself and God from yourself in the sphere of God. The greater the distance, the harder it is for you to see him experientially. This is the same thing as saying that this distance imposes a certain blindness. That is the goal of Satan, for people to be blind to the truth, to get them away from the one thing that sets them free. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for reminding us that it is the truth and the truth alone that sets us free. Thank you also for reminding us that it doesn't matter how we receive it necessarily in our souls, but that it is truth and that we orient to it, Father. That is what matters most, that we shed the old self and put on the new. What a grace provision this is, Father. We're so grateful for it and for your empowering it through your spirit. We just ask for your blessings as we take these things that we've learned back to the privacy of our own homes and then, of course, out to a world that's just decaying and falling away from all the good things that you have in store for those that believe in Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.